time to cue the coach. The world we are living in today has been spiraling out of control for decades in such a way that we are all losing our minds, risking our health daily, and choking on the ashes of a dying paradigm. You don't want to continue living in fear or in conformity to someone else's version of reality, do you? I know I'm done, and I've been done for quite some time now. Wellness needs an advocate. Holistic health, that is. It's time that we rise to the challenge of creating a brand new world with the fiery passion of a phoenix rising from the ashes. What beautiful essence do you possess that this world desperately needs? On this podcast, that is what we are here to find out. Together, let's unlock the pure potential from within. And as Gandhi said, let's be the change we wish to see in this world. And here we go. Episode 26, Addiction, Codependence, and Grief. Hello out there, beautiful souls. Welcome to another episode of Cue the Coach. I am your host, Michael Malik, and today I'd like to dive into a topic, or three topics rather, that are near and dear to my heart, and rather it's, it's just deeply intimate topics here, um, addiction, codependence, and grief. Yeah, it's. Uh, I can't really say that addiction itself and everything that comes with it is near and dear to my heart, but rather recovering from addiction and watching people recover from addiction and watching families change is more appropriate to say because let's face it, addiction itself sucks, right? I've been there myself. As a teenager, I got clean after almost dying from this crap and... Watching someone in the thick of it can be one of the most painful experiences we can have in relationships, whether they be friendships, lovers, your teenager, your own child, or a family member that's going through it. It's never easy to witness, right? I mean, who wants to deal with that shit? It's, it's horrible. But the reality is, in this world, there is so much of it. And it's, it's painful to watch someone lost in ego, fear, resentment, and self-obsession person seems to be unable to have ears to truly listen to any reason, and the addict themselves gives full control of their lives over to planning, scheming, lying, and manipulating to everyone around them under the hypnotic lies of a drug. They allow the body to become their mind. I've said this before, and it sounds odd at first, but the cutting-edge scientists that are out there and doctors such as Dr. Joe Dispenza describe it beautifully. And the, the, the synopsis of it is basically the body gets dependent upon the pharmacy of chemicals such as dopamine that the drugs either produce or cause the body to produce itself in excess. And then the body literally tells the brain how to respond. And the response is usually, I want more. The moment that that flood of chemicals starts to leave the body or starts to deplete, the, the addict wants more. And that's the only thing they can see. So when the addict themselves fails to make sense of this in their mind, uh, is that they, the body itself can actually produce these chemicals on its own. And when they're derived naturally, these chemicals that, that flood our bodies, they help to balance out the body's natural rhythms and energy rather than holding the brain hostage. When they're done properly, through the proper channels, through proper thought, proper emotion, and proper actions. But you can't tell that to an addict in the thick of it because, I mean, they are already addicted to a constant barrage of endorphins and dopamine that tear away their other emotional and mental awareness faculties. They can't hear a damn thing. So even the best advice in the world and pulling on their heartstrings doesn't work. Right? They can't feel it. In the middle of the thorns, they literally cannot feel compassion and love. The overabundance of feel-good chemicals from the drug makes them incapable of making room for such things, right? That they're, they're stuck in, in chaos. It's so hard to watch. The addict themselves has to find the willingness to get clean and provide enough time for their bodies to be cleared of this massive flood of chemicals before they can truly feel the repercussions of their own actions. 
and for that matter, before they can address the root cause of addiction, namely poor coping skills due to misaligned thinking and trauma. So how do we help somebody lost in the grip? That's the very, very hard part. There's some very sad truths, right? I'm not one to sugarcoat anything, so get ready to to just hear it raw because that's what this episode is about. One of the few things that can work for the addict, though, is to hear stories from other addicts who've gotten clean and managed to not only bring their body back to homeostasis, which is its natural functioning state of normalcy, but who have also changed the way they think about their daily lives, and they've changed how they act on a daily basis, or on a consistent basis at the very least. So this is why 12-step fellowships still exist today. As much as the percentage of addicts who actually get and stay clean in these fellowships is slim, it's still an incredible starting point and opportunity for addicts to identify and find hope for their dilemma. It's the first place, really, that their ears can be actually opened, that their eyes can actually be opened, that their heart can start to get involved in their own recovery. So what's important to understand also is that addicts are usually people that are filled with an overabundance of energy to begin with, in some form or another, they often feel deeper than a lot of other people do before they enter into addiction. And when a tragedy happens in their life or some monumental experience happens as they're growing up or in their teenage years, whether it be emotional, intellectual, or physical, a cycle of negative thinking coupled with unprocessed emotions buries their true self under the rubble of what life was before that catalyst. So the, the crazy part is, is if they're actually given the tools of understanding that emotional barrage and that they have this ability to feel more than other people, right, then they could have actually used those gifts for something amazing in their life if that was cultivated properly. And some of those people turn out to be the most amazing inventors and geniuses of this world. But if you're not given that opportunity and you feel like you're a piece of shit, then all you want to do is stuff that overabundance of emotions. So, I mean, these, these addicts, you know, and myself included, because I've been there, right? We tend to be lost in our heads, overthinking everything, and get caught in what 12-step meetings call the triangle of self-obsession. Now, because of who I am, this reminds me of the downward-facing triangle and the root chakra symbol at the base of our spine down to the perineum. That's the space between our, our ass... <laughs> And our genitalia, basically, right? And it reminds me of this because a person caught in this triangle of self-obsession is lost in thoughts of having their basic needs met only and seem incapable of moving this energy upward into higher energy centers. They literally project an energetic frequency of I am the center of the universe, right? It's that selfish. <laughs> and they don't really realize that. It's just the energetic frequency that they emit. You can just feel it. It's often cultivated in early childhood development, and the way 12-step meetings describe this triangle is having three points, resentment, anger, and fear. So the addict is stuck in looking outside of themselves for the fulfillment of their basic needs, and when those needs aren't met by others or outside stimulus, look out, because those three points drive their life force energy. So instead of passion, willingness, love, or self-expression that's found if we can cultivate that energy and bring it up into our higher centers... They're stuck in that fear, anger, resentment paradigm. So first, understanding that this is the paradigm that all addicts share is the first way to help them, understanding where they are coming from. Because they literally don't know or experience a better way of dealing with this triangle other than to keep using in an attempt to bury this overwhelming feeling of insecurity. I mean, they really just don't have that, that mental capacity. They haven't been given that understanding. The addict may have never been introduced to alternative solutions as a child, or they were so lost in their heads, trapped in fear and that triangle of self-obsession, that they just didn't have ears to hear it, even if they were introduced to these concepts. Now, like for myself, I, even, I, I know for a fact when I look back that there were people that tried to teach me things, but my daily experience was so wrapped up in fear, anger, and resentment that I, I couldn't trust them, I couldn't hear them, I had a lot of trust issues. <laughs> Right? And a lot of addicts have a lot of trust issues because they're, they're raised a lot of times in households where nothing they do is good enough or they're getting hit and beaten up for every little thing they do. Or in my case, I was sheltered from the world and told that everything was scary. So 
it was once described to me by a man named Dave in, in the meetings that I went to that addicts stuck in such a place are like a boiling tea kettle with no holes at the top to let the steam out. So there's no, there's, there's no little whistle letting you know that that tea kettle is about to blow. So the pressure builds and builds until the addict explodes and shoots boiling water all over everyone they come into contact with. Easy there, perverts. <laughs> this is boiling water we're talking about, not anything else. But the, the addict just blows up all over everything, right? And then everybody's left, you know, standing on the broken glass trying to deal with your crazy mentality. So the first thing to know is here, you can't speak reasonably to an addict that's caught in the grips because they don't yet have ears to he hear reason, to really deeply internalize it. All of the great advice in the world bounces off of them like oil hitting the top of water. It hovers at the surface and it can't penetrate the heart center to open them up to reason, right? So it's, it's just a useless effort. And even as recent as, you know, a week ago, from the day I wrote this episode, I still made the attempt anyway with a particular addict, which is what prompted me to present this episode to you today. So I'm not going to go into that whole situation because it's ongoing and it's with somebody close enough to me that it'll be obvious. Um, so I'm just going to leave those details out. But I just do want to point out that attempting to shame the addict for their addict actions is just as effective or rather ineffective at creating a desire for change. They're truly incapable of feeling it while they're still getting high. And if they do feel it for a moment, they just use more to stuff it away if they want to keep doing what they're doing. You can't, just, you can't stop somebody in the middle of that cycle unless they're willing to change. The hardest part is that sometimes you have to just let the addict sink into a deep bottom where some consequences hit them so hard that it jolts their heart open and tears begin to flow and feeling returns even if it's in a brief window, but it's usually in a, in a more profound way than just, you know, you give them a jolt from a conversation while they're still getting high. In, in that moment, they might have that jolt, but they're not really able to experience it. But if they can't get high and they're, they're stuck in the hell of their own consequences, which is what, you know, in, in these 12-step fellowships, they call you their bottom. That's where that window of opportunity is, where they might actually let something in that blows their mind. So now let's talk about codependence because this is a pervasive, pervasive problem when it comes to an addict staying stuck in addiction. So if you can't accept that your words and your power and your influence are not going to change this person, codependence is what winds up happening, right? So codependence, for that matter, is something to avoid entirely if you want to help an addict. And chances are, if you've been dealing with an addict on a regular basis willingly, or living with one especially, and trying to cope with it, then you are caught in the codependence. That's, that's the chances are, right? Otherwise, you won't stick and stay. You won't continue to be there. So... Maybe I will create another episode on codependence at some point, but really we're going we're gonna to touch deeply in it here because it is so incredibly helpful to know and understand what it is if you truly want to be able to help any addict at a chance for recovery. So firstly, there's, there's no reason to treat an addict that's in active addiction that's rude and obnoxious and using and careless respectfully. There's no reason to respect them assuming that they'll come around to your way of viewing things if you just keep loving them, accepting them, or condoning their perspectives in any way. That shit only works to facilitate a deeper dive into the world of addiction. So unless you've been there yourself in the thick of addiction, this may be hard to understand and to accept. But here's the secret. Often addicts are attracted to codependent partners because they feel safe in their ability to manipulate their partners into accepting their crazy outlandish behavior. They count on the codependent to empathize with their mindset and their sad lives. They count on you to take on their pain, to be their punching bag, and to help them make excuses for their behavior. Without this partner, they have no one to blame, punch, or beat up on but themselves. So it's not as easy to be alone in the addiction as it is to take hostages that will be there to support your craziness. Being the martyr for this cause will only leave you feeling broken, lost, and most importantly, You'll be the least helpful person in that addict's life, not 
the most. You're doing no one any favors by being lost in this hell with them. So understanding how to break free from codependence then, it's not easy to do, especially if that's what you learned as a child. Just like the addict, the codependent is addicted to fixing and helping others and often takes on all sorts of verbal, mental, emotional, and even physical abuse from their partners because this is what they know. They seem a perfect fit for someone struggling with addiction at first, but in reality, it's exactly the opposite that makes the better match for a potentially healthy, successful relationship, somebody that won't put up with their shit at all, right? Because addicts are codependents as well. They're codependent on the drug. They're codependent on the relationships that help them to get the drug and to continue doing what they're doing day after day. So an excellent book for those struggling with this codependency is Melody Beattie's Codependent No More, and I'll list that in the show notes. I read that years ago, and I've just started reading it again because an addict, my, as an addict myself, I was also very codependent. And I could still get trapped in it if I'm not careful, if I don't really pay attention to what it is. So think about that for a moment. What did we say about the triangle of self-obsession? The addict looks outside of themselves to fulfill their basic needs. And when those needs are not met, the addict falls into resentment, anger, and fear. And they get hostile, and they blame, and they get angry, and they say nasty things that they might not actually mean. So codependent is not much different than that, with one exception. Codependents that aren't addicted to drugs are typically addicted to fixing others or being there for others or being around others all the time. And when they can't succeed, the very same feelings and experiences befall the codependent, sometimes stronger than the addict because they aren't burying their pain in that bottle or that pill or that needle. You cannot fix, manage, or control an addict. The best way to help an addict is to let them fall into their personal bottom that I talked about earlier. And this is simply not possible for a codependent to do while utilizing the same old coping strategies. And there are meetings such as CODA and Al-Anon for codependents to get help as well. Now, CODA is Codependence Anonymous directly. It's specifically about codependence. And Al-Anon was specifically designed to help wives or husbands of alcoholics. Yet it has become a family therapy program and has helped a great many people that are codependent as well. So let's look at a real-world example of this addict-codependent story, shall we? So have you ever met a couple such as this next story? Just listen to it and keep an open mind. Identify it and just see how close you can come to this. I'm sure you've known somebody like this in your life. So a man, when attending family functions such as weddings, anniversaries, and holidays, shows up drunk and high to everyone. He hides in the corners, the bathrooms, or outside, smoking tons of cigarettes, avoiding everyone he possibly can, except those who want to complain, debate, or gossip about nonsense. Sound familiar, that type of personality? Right, and then the wife of the addict, let's say, seems to always make excuses for their partner's behavior and say things like, yeah, I know he's stuck in this addiction thing or this alcoholism, but when he's not high or drunk, he's so sweet and I love him so much. He's just uncomfortable in large groups of people. I'll never give up on him. He needs me to keep him on track, and I really don't mind. Sure, it really hurts sometimes, and it's so sad when he's stuck in that addiction, but I'm with him till the end. And then, let's say you talk to this woman or live near, here, near her. You can see that this addict is almost always drinking high or smoking cigarettes, not just in large crowds, but daily, even at home, when there's nobody around but his wife. So then the excuses don't hold up, but they push some people away from asking too many questions. The addict and the codependent will make these excuses and push people away and keep their circles very small so that they don't have to deal with you know, ex explaining this stuff. And let's face it, we all may struggle from time to time with social anxiety, but it's the addict who runs from it constantly and takes being comfortable to a whole nother level. And that level tears him or her out of participation in society almost completely, whether just physically or also emotionally and mentally checked out. So if you've never encountered such a couple as this, I, I'm, I'm truly amazed because this is a standard across the board for any addict in relationships in which one partner continues to use and abuse drugs and alcohol, gambling or even overeating or sex addiction, any of these things, right? Any addictions. So you can ask yourself, am I a codependent? If you're even just curious, read that book I suggested and you'll quickly find out if you are a codependent, I assure you. 
And you also figure out some really, really good tools to help break free of it. But just like the addict, denial is a powerful adversary. So be 100% honest with yourself. Continue researching until you can truly, honestly, and genuinely say whether or not this applies to you. So, of course, another common relationship other than the addict with a codependent is a pair of addicts who use together and abuse each other all day long and are codependent on each other. This often happens when addicts grow up in a household where the same dynamic was already happening. And abuse and addiction is all that person knows. So they repeat the cycle in adulthood, forming relationships that reinforce their feelings of normalcy. Not normal, I know, to you and I when we're looking at it from the outside. But to the one in it, or to the people in it, it feels familiar and known. So that's, that's it's part of that root chakra stuff that I was talking about earlier. When, when you feel safe, doesn't mean that you are safe, but if you feel safe, you'll continue to do what, whatever you know. So often addicts get together. <laughs> Just kind of feels right. So these are two different stories, yet there is an infinite number of variations that share similar patterns. Maybe there's the addict that does go to the social functions and just gets completely inebriated at the social functions. And then when they're at home, they're working through their week. They have no problems. And they, on the weekend, they just get hammered. Or at special occasions, they just get hammered. These are called weekend warriors, right? Or maybe, you know, there's, there's the wife that's addicted to pain pills and the husband that's a workaholic. You know, there's, there's any infinite number of combinations for this. So, again, I, identify the, what you can from this and, and, and don't compare stories, but identify what you can. That's, that's where you're going to get the most out of this episode here. So, that being said, though, the best way to help an addict is to first find out how to help yourself and to lead by example. And this is often so hard to do because even when you break free from a codependent and break, I mean, break free as a codependent and break free from that thinking and begin to stand your ground, the addict then reaches a heightened state of that triangle of self-obsession where all that safety is thrown out the window and they feel, oh man, I might be losing my, my codependent here. So then anger often leads to rage and violence. So... Be careful. If you feel you're in danger of this being your experience, you you gotta you have to enlist some outside help from others who can keep you safe in the process, which often means removing yourself from the household and limiting contact, which makes that old codependent triangle creep back in for you and for the addict. So my best advice is to amass that team before making any radical changes so that you're as prepared as you possibly can be for the fallout when it inevitably happens. It doesn't always happen, but it doesn't hurt to be prepared. No one deserves to be stuck in the abuse from an addict caught up in active addiction. Absolutely no one. It can literally destroy your mentality and your emotions for years. Even after the person's gone and you're no longer caring for them, you still feel responsible for their craziness. It's really hard to break. No one deserves to be living like that. So stepping away and refusing to cooperate in the addict's insanity while they're still alive is not harming them. It's the opposite. Stepping away from the tea kettle and removing the flame, which could be, could be, you're nagging at their behavior and your contribution to their behavior. Stepping away from that is the best way to help them. Fixing, managing, and controlling their addiction provides them the illusion of security, which keeps them locked and loaded to continue their erratic behavior. And in turn, they'll continue to abuse you as well, right up until their death, right, right up until their dying day. So Tammy, my wife, and I have talked about codependence often. We've asked each other, if I died tomorrow, would you be able to go on and live your life? Now, at first, this was a huge discussion, and we had to work through some codependent thinking on both our parts, really. But when all was said and done, we agreed that we would be hurt. We would experience extreme pain over the loss, but that we would each grieve in a healthy way and find the strength to move on. And at first, even the answers were, from a codependent mindset saying things such as, well, you wouldn't want me to be unhappy and miserable for the rest of my life, so yes, I would find a way to be happy. But that's a little limited too. We've since moved this to be, we both deserve to be happy and enjoy life, and life is too short to get lost in grief forever. 
Do you see how different each perspective is there? One is empowering while the former is still tied to the other person's desires rather than self-empowerment. And it leaves room for that grief to really jolt you when, when that situation actually does occur. So I bring this up because often a codependent will stay in an abusive relationship because they feel that if they leave, even temporarily, that the addict or abuser will be further propelled into addiction in their absence and that the addict will surely die if they're not there to support them. And the truth is, and this is the very hard part to accept, is that they very well may die. But they might die right by your side while you're allowing them to continue doing what they're doing to themselves. So I know this sounds very direct and somewhat harsh, but it truly is a serious matter. And again, I'm not, I'm not one to sugarcoat this stuff. No one wants to have to experience grief. No one does. But we all have to at some point. We all come face to face with it one day or another. Loss and death are a part of life, like it or not. So the next piece to work on here, so we, we talked about addiction, we talked about codependence, but we need to be able to learn how to deal with grief in a healthy way before it hits, before it really hits home. You know, usually when, when you have that very first experience of grief is when you realize whether or not you're able to handle it in a healthy way. But no one enjoys grief, obviously. There's no way to, to just get to the point where you're like, oh, yay, somebody died, right? Nobody, nobody feels that. Of course it hurts. Almost beyond comparison to lose someone we love. And there are ways to feel the feelings, though, to move through life with them while also not allowing the negativity of it all to completely consume you and trap you for the rest of your life. I've learned over the years through loss of loved ones how to deal with grief in ways that allow me to live on and continue to find joy in life, even with the passing of my grandmother, my mother, close friends, and many more. In fact, recently I was surprised to find myself immersed in a total chick flick of a series on Netflix. If you've never watched it, highly recommend it, uh, called Dead to Me. And it really pulled on my heartstrings since it's all about dealing with grief. Of course, there's some very unhealthy ways of dealing with grief displayed in the series as well, at least at first. But watching the main character's transition into actually facing her grief was what really got me. I mean, yeah, it's, it's really just a beginner's introduction to denial, substitution, and ignorance in the beginning and, and how dynamic that change can be. But it also introduces the concept of grief being able to be present even when somebody is not dead, but just no longer in your life or even just checked out emotionally. And this is a very real phenomena, and I've also been there myself several times before I learned the lessons I needed to from my own pain. I had grieved over so many things before I was grieving over death. So do you see from listening to this, though, just how closely related addiction and codependence are? You know, that grief is a part of this process because when it comes to addiction and codependence, it is about either fear of loss or actually losing something, not feeling like you have enough, feeling like you've lost your sense of security and you need it and you look to the outside for it. So I myself learned to deal with grief for the first time when my grandmother died, as far as grief from death. So she had a laugh that could light up any room. She was deeply involved in my life growing up. My uncle had passed away when I was 11, but you know, I wasn't really close to him at all, and I was still too young even to understand what happened. But when my grandmother died, my grandmother was a woman that took me to the pool every summer, all summer long, spent hours on end watching me and raising me, cooking for me, and would always sneak me a 20 and say, go spend it on candy or whatever you want. Just don't tell your mother. <laughs> right, she, was, she was my person. She was, she was the woman that, that made me happy as a kid. She made me laugh until my belly hurt, and she was always there for me with love, compassion, and joy. So when she passed in my early 20s, that one hit me really, really freaking hard. Now, fortunately, I had been reminded by people in Narcotics Anonymous meetings that everybody has to go sometime. You know, she was 85 years old and she died from cancer, but, you know, we never know when somebody could pass away. Could be 85, could be 25, could be 15, right? But I was taught that when someone passes away, however brief or long my encounters were that, with them, that I could close my eyes and still see that person. I could still hear their 
infectious laughter in my grandmother's case, or I could still hold my best memories of that person dear to me. Those things will never die unless I allow them to. And I can have them there for all the years of my life. I was taught not to focus on how the person dies or how they would no longer be a part of my daily life because they could be a part of my daily life in my mind. So holding the right, fr the right frame of mind helped me to keep my grandmother alive through the love in my heart and with the best of memories. And I still have all those great memories, right? I don't, if there was anything bad that I experienced, like her and my mother yelling and screaming, like I really have to think about that to, to immerse myself in those feelings. But if I just picture her smile and her laugh in my mind, it warms my heart every single time. So this has worked for me with her. It's worked for the loss of my mother and for several of my friends that have passed from addiction or other reasons. So that being said, just as I had said in my last episode on physical transformation, what you hold in your mind to be true and what you hold in your mind consciously daily or what you project to be true is how you create your own personal reality. So staying lost in the idea that you leaving somebody is going to kill them is the worst possible thing to hold in your conscious mind. If you're not powerful enough to get the addict clean, you're not powerful enough to kill them. Unless you literally stab them to death or shoot them dead or something of the sort, but please don't do that, right? That's not solving anything. The addict's choices are not your responsibility. Your response ability, two words there, is your ability to respond. So how do you respond in a way that protects you first and foremost? Authentically. That is the ticket. Is this selfish? It may appear so at first, but it's rather self-preservation and setting healthy boundaries than it is selfishness. You need to shift the way that you respond to the addict's behavior by working on your own fears, your own acceptance of grief, and by shifting away from codependence, pulling away the safety net of that codependence. We can't typically predict when tragedy is going to strike and when we'll need to amass a huge amount of energy to develop and cultivate coping skills to get through the other side of it when it does. So whether you're the addict or the codependent, that's true. That's absolutely true. So we can all learn a huge lesson from this if we listen closely to our own bodies and slow down when we need to. Now, many of us have addictions such as workaholism, pornography, and other things, even without the drugs, that keep us stuck in escaping from our problems, responsibilities we prefer not to deal with, or tragedy. And we may have codependent partners that accept all that bullshit when we throw it at their way, too. Right? It's easy to do, but it's not often easy to wake up from or to even be aware of. Think about your own addictions before you make judgments on any addicts for drugs for sure, because quite often the judgment is coming from a desire to look at someone else's problems with disdain while we avoid facing our own. It's easier, right? That's why a lot of people turn on the news and listen to all kinds of negative shit on there, because they'd rather see the problems of the world than deal with whatever is right in front of them. So people even in general need to amass their own desire to live and love life on their own. We can't force anybody into compliance with our own unique views of reality. We also, however, do not serve them or ourselves by allowing their negative behavior to continue just because we're afraid of the unknown. The unknown is typically unsettling and scary, but it doesn't have to be. All of the greatest discoveries, inventions, and products we live with on a daily basis are a result of someone embracing the unknown and creating something new, working through their fears. Because make no mistake, even the greatest adventures in the world started to put out their ideas and said at, the, at some moments in times, oh shit, is this really going to work? Can I really do this? Now without breaking through this fear, without working past it, we would have no progress in life at all, especially society as a whole. Now change is inevitable. It's how we respond to change and uncertainty that makes or breaks us. None of us needs to settle for mediocrity. We all have desires within that propel us towards figuring out the unknown and towards greatness. But some of us handle this more gracefully than others. That's okay. That's okay. Today is a day. Today is a new day. It's all about perspective. 
and it is possible to move through the fear into life-affirming action and creative expression. Depending on where you're at right now, you might have a great deal of work to do, great deal of work to do, or you may just need that one single drop of inspiration that transforms your entire outlook and transforms your life for the better. Some people, most people will give up, even especially like I talk, I talk about this with meditation all the time, most people will give up right before the magic happens. You know, you're caught in fear, you're caught in frustration, you're caught in failure, and then you just give up. That is the time to push forward stronger, harder, faster. That is the time, not every single day, day in and day out. Take the time to step back and find the inspiration so that you can grow and push through the fear. So will many addicts die from their addiction if they don't alter their lifestyle completely, not just put down the drugs, perhaps? Will they hit a bottom, a rock-solid bottom, and recover? Perhaps. I don't know. The odds are certainly against them, and maybe that's because a second level beyond 12-step fellowship should be more readily available to help addicts reach beyond what they find in these rooms, as they're called. I mean, perhaps coffee, cigarettes, a little identification, and a strong dose of hope should be a stepping stone into another chapter rather than a lifetime membership. Who knows what the future holds? Hell, I may even create a more intense version of 12-step work that's more organized, which holds the addict accountable for their work someday without the cigarettes, without the coffee, and without all of the craziness that sometimes ensues. You know, I mean... The, the foundation of this program is amazing, but there's, there's almost too much freedom for, for the addicts to really, really step into their, to claim their, their destiny, if it will. So it certainly seems we could use more help for these people, though. That's, that's, that's for sure. With, with the success rate being only like three in every 100, that actually gets clean. It's, it's, it's a tough statistic. But all this being said, to step away from a loved one when they're lost in addiction is a very, very hard choice to make. And it has broken my heart many times when I've had to do so. But I've done enough soul searching to know how and when to choose wisely and how I use my own energy, compassion, and love. This is so hard, people. I know. Especially if codependence is all you know and it's somebody that is desperately close to you. But it is still a bit easier when we stand for principles and practices that have worked for thousands of others. And it can work for you too. It's the most powerless feeling in the world to know that someone may kill themselves or when someone we love dies. But we just can't make that decision for someone else. Life, like it or not, is a personal decision to take part in. So protect your own energy. Step back. Reflect on self. Do the work. Let your story unfold. Let the entire story unfold. Break free from codependence and recharge your own energy. Be there from a distance with good advice and an open heart, but express your fears and anger and refuse to settle for excuses. Find a distance from the chaos that allows you to respond in a way that you can truly live with. Expect the best, but prepare yourself for the worst. One thing that's helpful for me when I'm trapped in a loop of negative thinking, anger, fear, or a need to control someone else's behavior is to allow myself a half hour to yell, scream, curse, blame, and to feel it all deeply. And then after that half hour, state positive affirmations of what I want to see instead. And then meditate for a half hour to center myself on what it would feel like if that person or situation was exactly the way I wanted it to truly be. So I do this this half hour yelling, screaming thing on my own with no one around, usually in the car when I'm driving. I'll be cursing and screaming and everything like that. <laughs> but, uh, but I do it with either, either by myself there or sometimes I'll do it with someone that I know can just listen, allow me to express myself, and who can ask me a few empowering questions to help pull me out of it if I'm really that crazy in it to allow me to see it through the other side to a healthy solution. But I always give myself the permission to feel and to express myself. That's one thing, that's one, one piece of codependence that I really, really learned to break through. I, there is never a time where I should shut down my emotions and avoid a situation entirely. When I do that, I make myself sick. 
it's, it's a horrible feeling to just stuff emotions. They have to be expressed. So I don't hash these emotions out over and over and over again all day long, projecting my fears, anger, and resentments in my mind all day, week, or month long. And I certainly don't sit there and constantly smash the addict or the codependent over and over and over again with my emotions. I just deal with my frustrations on my own terms and make sure that I'm in a, in a space where it's safe for me to express them. So just a half hour at maximum, folks, not all day long, all week long, not trashing the person that you're upset with over and over again until you stop feeling angry. Just allow yourself that half hour. That's healthy. Beyond that, it becomes embedded in your body and your subconscious, and it, it just messes you up. So keep in mind, I first, for myself, did a tremendous amount of work on myself to break free of codependence, addiction, abandonment issues, and on my own ability to move energy within my own body long ago, before even attempting this sort of routine. Because I wasn't capable of actually doing this, you know, for just a half hour before I started working on that stuff. So it did take me time to develop it, but I can tell you that it has had profound results over and over again. And who knows, maybe this podcast is finding you in just that right moment, awakening you to a fresh perspective on your life and literally sets you on a mission into transformation out of addiction or out of codependence or into healthfully dealing with grief. Once you have the ears to hear, heed the call and dive deep. Don't ignore it. You won't regret it if you are willing to see the journey through from start to finish. Accept failure as part of the process. But keep going. This applies to both the addict or the codependent or the person stuck in grief for years and years and years that hasn't processed it. It's for you too. So if you need ideas on how to start this type of work, go back and listen to my previous episodes where I talk about getting through emotional trauma or on focusing on manifesting the reality you want to see in this world or any of my other episodes on, on you know emotions and the chakras, etc. So these are, these are places, and, and this is some spots. You can, you can go to other people... Uh, Anywhere you want, of course, to learn to feed your brain life-changing concepts on a daily basis and more. So we need to take charge of our personal reality first if we even ever expect to influence others in healthy ways. I'm sure you'll find at least one of these episodes helpful in building the mindset that's capable of taking these steps. I'm sure you will find something. So also think about this. Are you inspired by someone that is severely obese to take charge of your health? Would you ask an addict seeped in active addiction with a needle in their arm how to get clean? No, of course not, right? Sounds silly. But if you see before and after pictures of a 300-pound woman who dropped down to 120 pounds and has amassed lean muscle in its place and is enthusiastic and energetic and excited about what accomplishment she's come to, or you see an addict after five years of being clean who's working the steps so diligently and transforming their appearance so much that you would never recognize them as an addict. These two situations, if these people are the ones giving you advice, now you may get a push of motivation saying, if she can do it, I can. So take that one step further. Once you start building that motivation, keep doing so until you no longer need to even look at others' accomplishments for your motivation. Work to the point that you can say, I see myself as 120 pounds, and it feels amazing. Again, listen to the previous episode where I talk about my own weight loss journey even. That was the one just before this, right? The episode 25 on physical transformation, where I lost 42 pounds in a year, healthfully, completely healthfully, not you know slow and steady, right? And you can find out how, how I did that. Don't just take the first piece of advice that fits in with your current way of viewing the world. Research. Look at the lives of the people you are following and dig deep and have patience. If you've been struggling with something your entire life, you don't need to rid yourself of it immediately. You need to rid yourself of it for good, but take your time, right? If you want, if you want to really get past it, get rid of it for good, take your time and, and, and do the real work. You know, are, are the people that you're looking up to living the life you truly desire to be living or are they projecting a fantasy while in their real lives, outside of social media, they're living in pain, stress, and chaos? 
So what grabs your attention wins. So make sure you pay attention to something that really makes sense if you're going to put your attention on it. Let your attention gravitate towards the real deal, and I promise, then you will be inspired. I say this because often when someone is dealing with an addict, for example, and wants to help them or wants to leave them and can't, they often turn to people for advice that don't have the slightest clue on how to deal with the situation in a healthy way. The people provide easy solutions to just get through another day with the least amount of effort rather than driving strong, long-lasting, positive change. This is why I say help yourself first. Be aware of who you surround yourself with. When we don't know how to deal with our own thoughts and emotions, we can't help anyone else to do so either. The more alive, conscious, and aware you are of yourself, the better chance you have at making choices that help that can help anyone else, really, that can continue to help you with pre, you know, with, with future choices you may need to make as well. Once you start building the muscle of making these consciously healthy choices, it starts to become a habit. It starts to become a routine. It starts to become attached to your subconscious. But would you rather that be a part of your subconscious or would you rather be sitting there taking away somebody's alcohol or drugs on a daily basis or hiding their keys or playing mind games to piss them off and drive them insane and think that you're going to push them to recover. You know, that stuff is just a waste of time. It's a crazy codependent nightmare waste of time. Make the real changes. When we feed our own soul, the limitless energy of the divine that is available to us never gets depleted. It's always available. We just have to slow down, get out of the way, get our egos out of the way, reflect on our essence, our core, true who we are, and make some room for personal awareness long enough to revitalize our own energy. And this is an ongoing process. If you're listening to this right now, you're alive. Change is happening. It's inevitable. And the unknown always awaits your receptivity to it. Take charge of it. Use your consciousness to make choices which are unique to human beings, by the way. Right? Animals respond to instinct and outside stimulus only. We are more than that. If you choose the alternative, reaching for outside stimulus constantly for gratification over and over again and repeating the same mistakes constantly day in and day out, you might as well just get down on all fours and start chewing on the grass and staring out into the horizon. Don't just be an animal. Be a conscious human being and unlock the gifts you have to share with this world. Make the unknown known by taking actions that scare you. Dive into the unknown with the eyes and wonder of a child and claim your humanity. Right? Think about that. When you were a kid, everything seemed scary when it was new. But you had the courage to do it back then when your inhibitions were, were lowered, right? Take the leaps. And then also pray for the addict who still suffers, but refuse to be the doormat to them at the same time. Breathe and know that the divine will inspire you from within and that it also can inspire them from within when you step out of the way and stop controlling the situation. And if you're an addict caught in the grips listening to this, maybe you can let this be a call to action to rise up out of the grave you've been living in and find the sunlight. Get clean long enough to feel again and take the power of choice back into your hands. The choice is always only yours. Live your life so that true gratitude, humility, and faith can inspire you to keep creating and lifting others up alongside of you. I truly fought with myself as to whether or not this episode would be helpful or if it's just stating the obvious because society as a whole is just pushed towards an active addiction mindset and stuffing our feelings with the accumulation of crap. We're all prone to addiction and codependence in a lifestyle such as we are living in this modern world. But being that it is considered normal, this pervasive issue is one of the most challenging to overcome in our time. So I'm kind of glad I put it out there. Whether it's stating the obvious or not, it's not something that we're allowing ourselves to stay focused on. And that's, that's my hope, is that we can actually start to pay attention to this shit. So think about this, right? If people weren't addicted to money, would there be anyone poor or starving anywhere? If people weren't addicted to convenience, is there a chance we'd all be growing our own food and that we would have plenty to share with our neighbors worldwide? If people weren't addicted to work, 
Would we have jobs that truly contributed to our overall well-being rather than working jobs we hate just to pay the bills and get out of the house? We are addicted, most of us, to one thing or another. That's not our reality, unfortunately. But those are the kind of questions I'd rather us be asking. And I'd rather us be taking the chances on it. And hopefully someday soon we really will all start getting on board with it. But ask yourself, what am I addicted to? You may find that underneath that addiction, once you get honest about it, when you stop doing it, underneath it is your life's purpose that's been there just waiting for you to grab it like a coiled snake ready to ascend into greatness, a greatness that you've never known before. So if that's you, if you find yourself either in the grips of despair and codependence and grief and sadness and you need somebody to help you move beyond that, or you're somebody looking for joy and inspiration and to find your purpose and to rip yourself out of addictive, monotonous, droning activities to actually contribute something that we really, really need from you, if that's you, reach out to me here at cuethecoach at yahoo.com or visit my Facebook page at cuethecoach and send me a message. Let's find a way to uncover your greatest gifts because I know they're there. Every single one of us has a beautiful gift to give. Until then, please take the time to rate and review this podcast wherever you're listening to it. Please share this podcast with anyone you feel called to share it with. Now, my advertising is still done mostly, truly through word of mouth only. So your word is very, very, very important to me. And I thank you even just for listening to this today. Yet I need your support to reach a greater audience and to grow this podcast. So please share it far and wide. Give me some feedback if there's anything missing, because this truly is my calling. This is the purpose that I uncovered by pulling my head out of my own ass. <laughs> and I'm really enjoying it. And I'd really like to continue enjoying it and continue getting more and more inspired for your benefit. So thank you. Thank you so much for listening. Namaste, everyone. Have a great day.